You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Ewan, I'm sure you've never been accused of copying anything out of Wikipedia. No, never. No, certainly not. We would never, as journalists, be looking for a shortcut to try and get some information quickly. I do do a lot of copying and pasting, though, in my job, because which is allowed, because we have 2,500 journalists here at Bloomberg, not to do the hard sell. True, and, and it's also use our, their work. our own material, which yes. I think is probably the key point here. This is the... Um, conversation we're bringing to you because of a report in the Financial Times today that Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, is in a bit of bother over her new book. She's written a book called The Women Who Made Modern Economics about the various female economists uh, influenced her thinking uh, and the FT has found that it contains material lifted from several online sources including Wikipedia and The Guardian. 20 or more examples of this they say uh, of sentences or paragraphs being lifted wholesale from these websites. Now the publisher uh, Basic Books says Reeves never sought to present these facts as original research. It did admit though that when sentences were taken from primary sources they should have been rewritten and properly referenced and they acknowledged that it didn't happen in this case whereas a spokesperson for Rachel Reeves has strongly refuted the accusations put uh, in the FT. Uh, Look, it's a bit embarrassing, obviously, um, that this would happen. I suppose it probably does illustrate the fact that the newspaper went to such an extent to research all of the uh, sentences in the book, I suppose, indicates a sort of attention that everything that Rachel Reeves does and says is now getting. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if maybe she should have used ChatGPT, which of course is very much in focus today with uh, the Prime Minister's uh, speech on artificial intelligence. This comes ahead of the big AI summit, which is uh, next week. This is a big focus for Rishi Sunak. Interesting that the Prime Minister uh, seems to be doing a lot of things which he's very interested in. This does seem to be, as well as the five priorities, uh, there are lots of policy areas which are his personal interest, which he's which he's focusing on. Yes, and so the speech in which he talked about how the risks that if developers get the technology wrong, that it could enable terrorists to spread fear and destruction, in his words, or make it easier to build chemical or biological weapons. He says that they shouldn't be in a rush to regulate, and it's hard to regulate something if you don't fully 
understand it. Sunak announcing what he called the world's first AI safety institute, which is meant to test new forms of technology and see what it's capable of, although he did acknowledge that the UK can't do this alone, which is part of the purpose around the uh, AI summit taking place next week. Let's take a listen to some of what the Prime Minister had to say. Get this wrong, and AI could make it easier to build chemical or biological weapons. Terrorist groups could use AI to spread fear and destruction on an even greater scale. Criminals could exploit AI for cyber attacks, disinformation, fraud or even child sexual abuse. And in the most unlikely but extreme cases, there is even the risk that humanity could lose control of AI completely. So that was Rishi Sunak speaking a little bit earlier. This, of course, all ahead of the AI summit taking place next week. The guest list a little bit thin on world leaders. Italian Premier Giorgio Maloney, so far the only G7 leaner, leader other than Rishi Sunak, who's been confirmed as attending. And perhaps the lack of star power might be denting the profile of the event as Britain works to forge an international approach to artificial intelligence. We want to take a bit of a step back and think about this issue more broadly. We're joined on the show by Connor Leahy, who's CEO of Conjecture, which builds applied, scalable AI alignment solutions. Connor, I read that off your website, and to be completely honest, I didn't really understand it. Could you explain to us exactly what you do? The main things I do is I ask the question, how can we build AI systems that are still useful and don't have the same kinds of existential risks that the prime minister in his speech just today declared are real and should be a global priority. And what did you make of the prime minister's speech today? A lot of focus on on AI regulation. Overall, I'm extremely happy to hear the prime minister be so clear that extinction risks from AI should be a global priority to address. This is extremely good. And in response to a question in the Q&A about the so-called responsible scaling policies, the prime minister also acknowledged that we should stop dangerous AI systems from being developed in the first place. And I couldn't agree more behind, uh, with this. The scaling of these systems is the main driver behind this risk and should be stopped. Practically speaking, how do you do that? It's a good question. The fundamental way you want to do this is you want to limit compute. So what this means is, is that AIs are kind of funny, is AIs are quite different from normal software. Normal software is code. It's written by a programmer and then executed by a computer. This is not how AIs work. AIs are more like grown. This is also called training. You have a large pile of data and then you grow a program on your data. But the program itself doesn't look like a human thing. It's like this huge pile of numbers and no one knows what they mean or how they work. And the funny thing is, is that the general intelligence and capabilities models tends to scale with the amount of computer, the size of the computer, so to speak, the amount of computing power you put into this. So what we should be doing is we should say, well, at some point, these things get dangerous. This has been acknowledged by the prime minister, by the European Union, by many experts in this field. So first, we should be stopping this. Uh, but unfortunately, the uh, current policy being pushed at the summit and elsewhere by industry is what's called responsible scaling, which is a policy where it, it leaves companies by default completely free. And the government can't do anything until they prove danger of these models. This is, of course, exactly the wrong way around. Companies should be demonstrating safety 
of their systems. It's not the government's job to demonstrate that some drug or nuclear reactor is dangerous, especially not only after it's built. But this is exactly what these policies have been pushing for, is that they want governments and other organizations to be forced to demonstrate danger, and only then might they stop. Okay, so, so, sense, so to, to be able yeah. to control that, then, I'm just trying to think about this in practical terms. I mean, when, when you compare it to things like, like nuclear power, there's obviously safety inspections mm-hmm. that have to be carried out to validate that. So do we need government AI safety inspectors going into and standing over programmers as they try and develop this software? In, in white coats and... Uh... <laughs> white coats and special glasses. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's even worse than that. The problem is, is that we have no idea how to actually check for safety. This is a fundamental scientific problem that no one knows how to solve. So there's this feeling that these companies like to give is that they know how to test for safety. They know how to detect danger. This is categorically false. And they will admit this if you press them on this, is that no one knows how these AIs work. They're huge blobs of numbers. We don't really understand how they work. We don't know what they're capable of until we build them. This is the crazy thing about AI. As I say, it's not really programmers sitting there. It's more like programmers staring at a big computer as it slowly crunches numbers and then spits out something. And what it spits out, we don't know. But does that mean essentially we have to stop the development altogether, that essentially this can never be safe? Until we have solved very, very hard scientific problems of understanding systems, that is exactly correct. We have to stop the frontier. Now, this does not affect many kinds of applications, most types of applications. Most types of AI, as you might see, for example, in healthcare or other such fields, do not involve these extremely powerful general purpose AI autonomous agent systems. So this would only affect less than 10 companies in the entire world. But they should absolutely be stopped. You explained it as a, as a battle between industry who wants self-regulation and government who, who, who need to do something about this. Who do you see winning that battle? Do you, do you see any any signs of any hope that, that there will be there will be change? At the moment, it unfortunately looks like our industry has been doing a very good job in their lobbying efforts. Microsoft has very good lobbyists, as do other players in this field. And we can see this from the government already hinting at uh, the adoption or the interest in responsible scaling policies and other such things, which by default mean that we keep going. It's really kind of crazy. We all agree at this point that we're playing Russian roulette. Extinction risk has been acknowledged by all player. So we agree we're playing Russian roulette. Now we're just quibbling over how many pulls away the bullet is. And now my opinion is, is that if you're playing Russian roulette, you shouldn't argue whether or not the bullet is one or more strikes away. You should stop playing. Now, just I, I acknowledge that you've mentioned Microsoft. We obviously don't have them on the program to be able to talk about it. I do note that they have their own responsible AI standards, whatever uh, you might think about them. The, they do obviously acknowledge this is an issue that should be addressed. And it'll be interesting to see what sort of engagement companies like Microsoft have with the AI Summit as well. So I, I'm interested in you saying that it's limited to really only a very specific kind of AI. So there are you think there are mm-hmm. harmless versions of it as long as they're limited in application. Is that it? I think there are AI, I think there is many risks of AI that come at many different levels. The extinction risk, so the the threat of humanity being outcompeted and replaced by a more intelligent system, only applies 
to a very, very, very small subset of the AI field. Only the most expensive frontier billion dollar systems, only those are affected by this. Most scientific applications do not have these same risks. They may have other risks, but... And, and, what, and what does that look like? Because it, that's not chat GBT, is it? That's something completely different. Just explain what that looks like to us. Well, in a sense, ChatGPT is a early precursor to exactly the kinds of systems that we're worried about. ChatGPT is a system that costs millions or hundreds of millions of dollars to build, uh, maybe potentially billions, we don't know for sure. And even more powerful versions of these systems are being built that not only chat, but can also use tools, can act in the environment, can execute plans, can do things. They're building autonomous general intelligence. And let me be very clear, if we build systems that are more competent than humans at manipulation, deception, politics, business, science, and everything else, and we don't control them, which we currently don't know how to do, then the future belongs to them, not to us. It's really that simple. So sure, if you have something that's not as smart as a human, like ChatGPT, you know, it's mostly fine. But eventually, you're going to get autonomous systems that are smarter than humans. This is the explicit goal of OpenAI, mm. the company developing ChatGPT and other systems. And I expect they will succeed. Let's think about then, I suppose, how this might be framed in, in the conversations that are going to be had at the AI Summit next week. Is there, I, mean, I suppose, what could be achieved that you would view as a success in that area then? What would you like to see being agreed as guardrails being the expression often used around this technology? So I will be attending the summit um, as well. And right now, it does look like it is very likely to be captured by the big tech companies backed by many big tech billionaires for these kinds of responsible skating things. What would make me uh, feel extremely hopeful is if we could, in any fashion, acknowledge the need for computing caps, for actual pauses, actual moratoria, until we have better safety standards. Another thing I would be very excited about is something that a colleague of mine called MAGIC, or the Multilateral AGI Consortium, which is the idea that existential risk dangerous AGI research is only allowed to be performed at a special, extremely secure, multinational facility, kind of like a CERN for AI, and is banned in any other thing. So we can have the highest possible safety standards for it. Both of these would be extremely good, in my opinion. Do you think the politicians and regulators have really got a grip on this at, at all? No. <laughs> uh, some <laughs> are trying, and I and I greatly appreciate their efforts. I really want to speak a high word of praise for the UK government um, and for Rishi Sunak and other people here for even creating a summit like this, for even acknowledging these risks. This was brave. This took effort. This was hard, and it does give me hope. One thing that is incredibly clear from polling is that the general public is very, very clear in that they do not want superintelligence. They don't want us to keep playing ex, uh, Russian roulette, and they don't want unelected, unaccountable uh, technologists to be allowed to run potentially lethal experiments on literally everyone without their consent. And this is the job of government to put an end to this. We have a chemical a company spewing chemicals into a river, the government stops them. A lot of... Um 
politicians will point to the or have pointed regularly do point to the innovation potential of AI and how this could be perhaps a resolution to the low economic growth problem that plagues Western economies. What do you say? I mean, th- th- that is going to be an argument you're going to come up against if you want to limit the the extent of this technology now. This, as I said, affects only a teeny subpart of all of AI. So this would not in any way affect the uh, 99% of the field of AI and innovation there. But there's also another way around. You know what's also something that really increases GDP? Bad financial derivatives, like the ones who blew up the 2008 financial crisis. Sure, you can increase global growth by increasing risk, by doing riskier and riskier and riskier thing until you blow up. You can make a lot of money by playing Russian roulette. But my question to politicians is, is there an acceptable level of extinction risk? We mostly focused on 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 the bad stuff in this interview. I'd just like to, to finish off by asking you, what could be the dream scenario? What are some of the really good things that we could get out of AI in the next few years? Oh, there are so many fantastic things that can come from AI. Absolutely. AI it gives us the potential to solve so many intellectual and scientific tasks that in the past have been so difficult. If we could just avoid the worst outcomes, if we just control the extinction risks and give our scientists some time, imagine all of our greatest mathematicians and physicists and computer scientists, just having a few more years, a few more decades to work on controlling and making these systems safe. We could have incredible leaps and bound progress in medicine, in material science, in education and entertainment. There are huge benefits to be had here. But like with any technology, anything powerful is a double-edged sword. So we just have to we have to be responsible in wielding it. Connor Leahy, CEO of Conjecture, thanks so much for joining us and bringing us up to date with all of your analysis ahead of next week's AI Summit. No change is not an option. The words of Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, he's telling the pensions industry to get on with reforms. He says the government is putting the finishing touches to further measures to be announced in next month's autumn statement. He goes on to say we need to recognise we're not saving enough and we're not getting the best returns in terms of international benchmarks. You make a lovely Chancellor, you, and I have to say. Do you think so? Yeah, I think we should give you more speeches to read out. Okay, we could do that. (laughs) Let's bring in our city editor, Catherine Griffiths, to save us from uh, Ewan's impersonation of Jeremy Hunt. Uh, this Look, this is a very serious story, but also a very interesting one that we've been following for several months now since the Mansion House speech um, this summer and even before, Catherine. What did you make of the statement from Jeremy Hunt? Now, this is moving us on from where we were, these big ideas to help boost the UK economy using pensions. Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting that Jeremy Hunt chose to come in person this week to an event at the Mansion House in the City of London, which the crowd was lots and lots of people from the pensions industry. He's got his uh, autumn statement in four weeks. He chose to kind of come, I think, and sort of say, right, come on, let's actually get on with this now. We need to come up with the ideas that can feed into the autumn statement. Obviously, the Treasury's doing extensive work on this. But I, I almost wondered if there was a little bit of frustration on Hunt's part, because there has been quite a lot of sort of wrangling behind the scenes between different vested interests in this debate. And um, while I think the sort of the public face of it is all very, thank you very much for helping City and we're all in it together, actually there's an awful lot of sort of disagreement. And I think he wanted to sort of give some urgency to the matter. Just um, take us back a couple of steps 
uh, and explain what it's called the Mansion House Con- Compact, isn't it? W- what is that, and what was it's he not, trying to get Not a very to, small to mansion house, which is what I originally thought when I read it. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's it's a uh, it's it's sort of quite funny because um, you know, as as you know, the Mansion House hosts various sort of big dinners during the year, and the Mansion House Compact was agreed in the summer. Um, it was nine pension providers at the time. It's now ten, um, and they've agreed to divert a certain amount of their funds under management, people's savings essentially for retirement into kind of growth assets. And actually there was a performative nature to this compact, which I think slightly surprised people in that they had to sit and sign this compact at the dinner in a sort of side room. Um, And I almost wondered if they didn't necessarily want to kind of put, you know, pen to paper in a way, because while I think everyone does agree, undoubtedly, that as a country and a society, we need to save more money for retirement. And, you know, asset managers and pension providers, of course, do actually want to do the best they can. There are all sorts of kind of complications when it really comes down to it. So, well, how do you really decide what assets to choose? Um, How much, what is the sort of appropriate level of fees to charge? Um, Is it a good idea to kind of have a new fund that is the place where this, you know, place where the money gets put and that mm. is the fast growing fund or do you as a firm want to sort of hold on to that money and do it yourself these are the sort of crunchy issues because it's a risk as well that you know it, it sounds like a, a great idea for a politician to announce that yes we should make these companies that have so much money under control invest it in britain you know that'll be great for growth we'll all feel you know much much more cheered by that as well but it is as you say quite a technical point and and the industry's been i suppose trying to make sure that I suppose, push back a little bit on the idea that it would be simple? Yeah, the industry has been pushing back on the idea that it is simple, most definitely. And you've got various reasons for that. That's partly because, say, some of the big insurance companies in this country do something called buyouts. That's So if you're a company and you don't want to manage your company pension scheme anymore, you might choose to sort of offload that to an insurance company. And that can be seen as a really good, sensible thing to do. Um, but others might say, well, fine, but actually the insurers obviously make money out of that. They charge large fees. Possibly down the line, pensioners don't get quite as much of a return as they might in other circumstances. Buyout is seen as a very sort of legitimate uh, business. It can be a good solution. But arguably, why why in the UK do we have this big buyout industry? Would actually it be better for people in their old age for us not to kind of go down that route so much? So there are quite big questions to be answered. How much of this is about um, the UK government trying to persuade asset managers to use assets to invest in Britain PLC? And how much of it is about pension returns? Because the two things aren't necessarily compatible, are they? For sure, yes. And I think that's very much a part of this backwards and forwards on this topic. I mean, the proponents of reform will say to you, well, the idea is diversification. So you you might, well, of course, it's risky to invest in startups, but because you would diversify, you might lose a bit here or not make so much here, but in other areas, you would make absolutely loads. And so across the board, it is a sort of robust analysis that you would make higher returns. And of course, you then factor in that, you know, for people, uh, especially younger people, they've got decades and decades. So uh, yeah, it probably is a legitimate thing that more of their pension savings is put into higher growth assets. And then you get the kind of the, the beauty of compounding as well over those decades. So there's, you know, there's a, there's a very sort of sound point that people are making. As we think about what 
is now we're going to be looking for the next steps of this at the autumn statement uh, in only a few weeks time what what will be the key elements that we're watching out for when it comes to the next steps being taken and, and how does the british business bank the government owned um bank in involve or kind of how does it fit into this plan yeah so i think one of the things i thought was interesting from hunt was he said he wasn't keen on mandating um and that again has been quite a big part of the row over the summer so he he said there are too many small pension funds in this country. The government clearly wants to see consolidation among smaller funds. And it, you know, it makes a lot of sense. You have a smaller number of big funds. They can employ really professional management to find those good assets. Um, they can employ economies of scale. So I think we'll see something around consolidation, but not about forcing any consolidation. We will probably see more, though, on local government pension schemes and them being brought together. Hunt used this phrase about the government leading by example. They use that in the summer as well in the Mansion House Compact. So I think we'll see some more on that. Um, And then we're sort of fishing around in the world of how do they kind of encourage um, investment in growth. So the British Business Bank will probably have um, some sort of bigger role than it currently has in in having maybe either existing or maybe a new fund that would invest in growth and maybe private investors, uh, pension funds might be able to invest alongside that. So we might see something along those lines. And then on the other side of the coin, we might see something about uh, retail investors, something on ISIS perhaps um, to encourage people in their own savings to invest in growth assets. The big question will be, will they try and incentivize people to invest in UK startups and growth funds firms or will it will they not go down that path that also has been contentious the pensions industry of course wants to be able to to be free to invest in infrastructure and illiquid assets around the world but obviously the government has an interest in trying to get quite a bit more investment in those assets in the UK. Mm -hmm. On on that subject obviously growth is something that Rachel Reeves talks about constantly uh, uh, and the uh, leader of the Labour Party do we have any indication of of how these proposals might look under a, a different government have they talked about their plans on on any of this? Yeah, so um, as you say, Rachel Reeves is very interested in this topic and they have talked about creating some kind of growth fund. So I think you've got the two political parties sort of grappling to own this topic because they both like it as a topic. And I think what you're seeing, not so overtly in the public domain, but I think behind the scenes, some of the stakeholders can see full well that both parties want to do it and so they're sort of slightly playing one off against the other you know which is going to give them more of what they want versus the other so the autumn statement on the one hand Hunt is in a tricky position because he's under a lot of pressure to cut taxes Um, they don't have any money but he wants to own this narrative so maybe they will have to be quite bold on some of this stuff Mm. because he doesn't want it to look like it's labour ideas basically Yeah, really interesting stuff to watch Catherine Griffiths, our city editor thank you so much for joining us with the details of that story That is it from us for today If you like the programme don't forget to subscribe Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Max Green I'm Ewan Potts And I'm Stephen Carroll We'll be back with more tomorrow This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.